Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 13, Ghost Faces! Let's get this show on the road. <laughs> So I'm going to take a wild guess and say that you enjoyed this episode. This episode was so good. And like at first it was just because it was ridiculous. But then by the end, like reflecting on it, it's just it's so brilliant to do an episode like this. I agree. It was a really wonderful way of like taking us out of the season while still kind of like reminding us that Dean only has a very limited time uh, left to live. I I just thought it was a really good episode. I went in being like, oh, I'm excited to see Ed and Harry again. They're fun characters. I didn't expect this like masterpiece. Well, I'm very excited for the masterpiece that is going to be your recap this week. Count me down. Three, two, one, go. We open on what appears to be the ghost facers submitting their video for producers to pick up their show. They're sitting in tuxes, acting real douchey, if I can say so myself, and presenting this episode of their show, which essentially is the episode we end up watching, which is them in this haunted house with this ghost that kills people, but only on leap years. And it ends up being a really cool ghost story. And we get to deal a little more with like specters and death loops and how that works. But it becomes this like almost biography of the brothers because it's from an outside point of view. But ultimately it ends with only one person dying, which is still more than I would have liked because he was an amazing character and I loved him. But it does involve professing gay love, which is kind of a cute little weird nod at the end of the episode. And really, this becomes just a really good character building episode, a lot of fun and a lot of good spooks. There really isn't much more to say than that time. This was a good one. This was a fun one. Interestingly, the ghost facers or Ed and Harry are going to follow the brothers like through the seasons. So, I mean, not very closely, but still, we're going to hear about them until very late in, in the show. Well, I am excited for that. I also realized in doing my recap, this isn't a very like plot heavy episode for the overarching seasons. I feel like in the past that was really obvious. And this time it took my recap to realize that because I was just so enamored with so much more of the show. This episode does what it does really well. Like it, like I said, it takes us out of the season by giving us a completely different filming style that's closer to like documentary or reality TV compared to what we're used to seeing with Supernatural. There's just a couple of things that the show doesn't usually do that it does with these characters, and I just think that it works so well. It even lets them poke fun at itself a little bit, uh, including some very obvious lines at the beginning related to the writer's strike. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Shall we walk into the long game together? Yes, please. All right, so we've discussed this already, but this is another Supernatural special. It's done in a completely different style like we've discussed already, and we get to meet back with the Ghost Facers, Ed and Harry, and this time they have a team with them. The Hellhounds, uh, I mean, the, uh, the Ghost Facers have a little squad. They have, what is it? It's uh, one of them, it's their sister, and then two more friends. I'll be honest, I can never remember which is Ed, which is Harry. I just know one of them has the sister, and the other one makes out with the sister. <laughs> yeah, makes, makes up with the other one's sister. Let's, let's try to make sure to keep those straight. We also get to hear the brothers swear, sort of, 
it was really funny because it made me realize like they never really do swear like properly swear and here they're doing it a lot but only because we're allowed to censor without it being weird and you just know that if this was on a different network like hbo for example we would be getting them swearing all the time like we'd be getting f-bombs left and right oh for sure Previously on Supernatural, we've seen queer women in terrible lights, mind you, but this is the first time that we meet an explicitly queer man. And this episode was also nominated for a GLAAD award in 2009. I would also argue that this is the first bury your gays on the show, specifically Gay Guy Dies First. With all that wrapped up, shall we head into story time? The first thing I noticed in this episode is the sculpture in the background. And this is at the very beginning when Ed and Harry do their very first like interview segment. So if we take a step back in the recap, we see Ed say that their big break could lead them to sex with girls, leaving in the subtext that sex with guys may not be that unusual for them. And in this scene where they're like being interviewed, the sculpture in the background between them looks like a sex toy. I will have to go back and verify this. I believe you fully, but I somehow missed this. I think I was just so baffled by the entire ambiance they presented us that I, I, I couldn't look for details and I'll now need to give that a rewatch. I've been watching this episode for years now, and this is the first time that I notice it. Again, the subtext here being that they, they are in some sort of sexual relationship. We'll definitely talk through it more. The first initial viewing gave me that kind of like vibe of like, oh, the gay is kind of a joke. The more you think about it, the more it kind of feels like they're never joking about it. They're just kind of, they're oddballs, all of them. I really go back and forth about this episode and how I feel about it. We'll talk about it a little bit later because I have thoughts that are kind of like more structured about it. But yeah, I think that there is a joke to be made, but I'm not sure it's at the expense of queer people necessarily. Yeah. So can we take a little detour and briefly talk about Kenny Spruce, the camera operator? What about him? His blood quantum comment killed me. Oh God, his like one eighth Jewish, one sixteenth. What was it again? I think he says something about being uh, indigenous, right? Being Native American. Yes. Right. So he's like 15 sixteenth Jewish and one sixteenth Native American. It made me laugh because I've heard so many people throughout my life talk about like, I am one sixteenth whatever. Especially when it comes to indigenousness and Judaism, it's not about how much of your blood or DNA says one thing or another. It's whether or not you're immersed in the culture and the traditions. And what I like here is that the joke is poking fun at the people who use blood quantum to describe themselves, not indigenous or Jewish people. So it's a real joke because it punches up, not down. And that's funny to me. I think that describes this entire episode almost like I'm sure if I really took a second look, I could find some jokes that were not as good, but I feel like the majority of jokes are punching up. There are a lot of jokes that are punching down, but some of them do punch up. And this is one of those that punches up. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's such, I feel all kinds of ways about this episode. <laughs> Let's carry on. <laughs> Something that I really loved about this episode, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is that we're introduced to Sam and Dean from an outsider's perspective, which again is brilliant. Oh, fully, fully brilliant. It is so interesting to see other people's perspective on the brothers. And I think this is even a step more unique because these are people who 
fully embrace the supernatural already and are not meeting them for the first time per se, but meeting them for the first time in a more professional setting. Please note professional said with the most air quotes I could muster. That was kind of my observation too, because as much as we all love Baby and Dean's taste in music, can you imagine the noise that they must make when they roll up to a job? Like, how does the whole neighborhood not, like, freak out about these two people who, these two huge guys, like, just rolling into their neighborhood in this huge Impala? It's not subtle. Like, I think it's one of those, like, just you have to, like, disconnect for a moment from the show. Because realistically, if someone drove down my street with the, like, good music playing, the windows rolled down in this stunning old Impala, I would probably wave them down and be like, hunting ghosts? (laughs) Like, (laughs) something's up here. You're either going to rob somebody or you're going to go kill a vampire. One or the other. At the very least, it's definitely not inconspicuous, right? Everybody would notice just from the noise that this car makes. And I mean, let's be honest, if I was walking alone down the street and I saw these two giant men in plaid rolling up in an abandoned building in a muscle car playing loud rock music, I would probably run the other way. Like, no questions asked, you know? Just, I know enough about self-preservation, you know? See, that's where you and I differ. And again, I think there's a lot of, but I would just uh, hide in a bush and pull out my phone and film. Cool, 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 cool. And I mean, the, the ghost facers have their own reactions to this, right? They're like, oh, not cops, just hicks. Yes. (laughs) Right? And I feel like that's one of those jokes that punches down at people who are from a lower socioeconomic class. And I just, that, I don't know. Was the joke about the cops or was the joke about the hicks? And I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. It is insulting a class of people by comparing the brothers to a class that is looked down upon that shouldn't be. You're right. This is an example of punching, of punching straight down. You're right. This is why I'm saying that I feel all kinds of ways about this episode, because it just doesn't seem to like find its footing as to where, where its humor is directed, I think. And I think that this is why so many people also keep arguing about whether this episode is a good queer rep episode or not. Oh, we'll definitely get into that. I feel like the intention with every joke here was to be about themselves. Like the joke here was very much about the brothers being like, a certain way it's just unfortunate that they use the term that we know now is not really appropriate it's not really like a fair comparison which back then would have been like free game for comedy it's just that it doesn't just poke fun at sam and dean it pokes fun at an entire well i've said class before but just an entire group of people who usually live in poverty and so again punching down not up not great This is also one of the rare times where Sam and Dean are found out. This should have been obvious. Up till now, they've never been found out, I don't think. It's been questioned, you know. I think in season one, people we've seen people questioning them. But here, they're really, like, it's really clear, right? When they come into the house and they ask the ghost facers for IDs, Ed recognizes them almost instantly, and he calls Dean chisel chest. I just, I'm sorry, but I have to say this. I don't know what is funnier, whether it's that he calls him chisel chest or Sam's face. Just like, what the fuck did he call you? (laughs) But I like that that's the one thing that you kept from Dean to refer to him as. The homoeroticism is pretty strong. You've remembered that detail a little too much if that's the first thing you think of when you see him. You're not wrong, I'm just saying. But that's the whole thing, right? And Sam is kind of making the same face that he makes whenever, like, Dean makes a really, like, 
gay joke basically or a gay comment and he's like oh, why why can't you why just just like just be yourself openly and i feel like we, we get a little bit of that sam flavor there in that moment <laughs> we do it's so good oh this entire like i know this episode's not perfect but like oh it's so close it's a pretty funny one I might be taking an early step into critical time here, but I just love that change of perspective. I keep raving about it because almost every episode we've seen Sam and Dean just like whisper to each other about what's going on. But as viewers, like we're always a part of that conversation. And the because, and that's particularly because the camera work always includes us in those moments, right? Like we, we feel like we're part of that conversation. It's, it's Sam, Dean, and the viewers. But here, we see just how close and closed a team they really are. They just don't let outsiders in. And this basically hints that if we as viewers were physically present in the story, we wouldn't be included in their discussions, right? Like as much as we would like to think that we would be, for me, the change of perspective really breaks that fourth wall and reminds us as viewers that we're outsiders in the brother's story. You know, there's several moments in this episode where they like overhear the brothers say something and that's what sparks the conversation or the the expositional moment where they can explain like what a death loop is or something along those lines. I think it also pokes fun of the fact that they like have these private conversations, but still clearly loud enough for people around them to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's subtle. I feel like that's like a subtle amount of like. Because I've like thought it before when they're sitting in a diner where there's other people. Like, have you never been sitting in a diner or a coffee shop or someplace and you just like somebody says something and your brain just goes full on. What did I just hear? You're telling me they've never been sitting in the diner and they're like, oh, yeah, no, the ghost of that old man who murdered 30 people. And the waitress goes, sorry, the ghost of the who now? <laughs> well, I mean, just the last episode or a couple episodes ago, you know, like. You're stuck in a what now? <laughs> Isn't that deja vu? <laughs> <laughs> True. Good point. So they, they've already started making the joke, but here they really let it land. I feel like this is this, you know, self-deprecating humor that works so well in Supernatural. All right. So we don't often do this, but I'd like to point out one specific costuming choice here. Corbett, the poor dead and in gay intern, is wearing full camo gear. Who else? has famously been called a soldier on this show. Oh my god, Dean. Our poor, almost dead by hunter. The episode ends with a really iconic line in the fandom, and that is, gay love can pierce the veil of death and save the day. That is possibly one of the greatest sentences ever uttered on television. And may I remind you, this episode also included a line that I personally have chosen to love, which is, be gay for the poor dead intern. You know what? Sounds like a really dumb line, and I could see where people might see it as like insulting or like making fun of. But the fact that none of them have a problem with it, the fact that they are accepting of the fact their friend is gay, they're accepting of the fact that a gay romance is totally fine, and that they all sort of embrace it, like in the way that someone who goes like, "Well, like it's not for me, but like it's totally fine if you want to," and like if you had a crush on me, I wouldn't be like mad or anything, like. You you are on the spectrum of queerness and you are just not okay admitting it yet. Again, it kind of comes back to our conversation about who this episode is trying to make fun of. And I think it's not quite clear. 
to the to the writers of the episode, you know, and to the production and everything. Like I, I I'm not too sure that they knew exactly who they were making fun of. But it is a, a really funny line, yeah. Especially in today's context where where we know how terrible Supernatural is in terms of queer rap. And yet, like, you've got all of these queer folks who are just kind of trying or who are in the process of reclaiming it. And I just, be gay for the poor dead intern. There you go. <laughs> and I'd like to conclude story time with this. Um, this episode was basically about a guy who was in love with another guy who sort of kind of died saving the other guy. It's eloquent, I know. Even I understand what you're saying with this. <laughs> like, even I could paint this picture so well. Is there such a thing as, like, a queer dog whistle or, like, a supernatural dog whistle? Where, like, I'm not calling the racists and the bigots. I'm calling the supernatural fans. <laughs> like, is that, is that a thing? Whatever it is, we need it. We'll invent it. A supernatural whistle. I don't know. We'll find it. With that, shall we head to critical time? Yes, please. So who do we have to thank for this beautiful hot mess? Ben Edland, who wrote Bad Dad Black Rock and Malleus Maleficarum. I knew we said Ben Edland would be carrying a certain torch. You were not wrong. I am I ever. It's rare, isn't it? <laughs> Much like Sam, you are always right. <laughs> I am Mary. I am right. And the director was Phil Scritchia, and this season he directed The Kids Are Alright and Justin Bellow. Well, the two of them did an amazing job. They've got a good track record. I am oh so happy with this. Like, just thank you to the both of you. Yes. Are there issues? Mm-hmm. Do some of the jokes not age well? Yeah. But I love what you did. I love the humor you guys took with this. Thank you. Can I just bring up one thing in Critical Time that it just like it drove me like a little crazy by the end? Yeah, of course. The goal of the video that we are watching, which is their ghost hunting video, which they're going to submit to however many studios and execs try to get a gig, literally includes footage of their friend dying. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that people tried to make up stories about like weird stuff that happened on set. I would imagine that any producer receiving this would be like, "Ugh, I can't believe that they're making up that story, you know, like. And we've seen that, actually, in an episode. But I think you as a person to say, hmm, we did this. We have this footage. We have the power to edit this footage. Let's keep the bit where our friend literally gets murdered by a ghost on film. How do you explain that friend's death afterwards, right? Like, you go to the cops and you're like, oh, yeah, the poor dead intern died because of a ghost. Like, and then these two hunky dudes came up in their Impala and helped us clean up the mess. There's a part of me that goes, like, I love these two, but to include that footage just seems so inappropriate. Like, they're a little silly. They're a little silly. There you go. <laughs> I also do love, because I think it happens twice in the episode, where one of the brothers makes a comment to, like, you're still filming this. The response is, it just makes me feel comfortable. Like, it's such a common trope in TV to be like, why are you still filming this? Like, any sane person would put the camera down by now. It's just, it's a really cute way to kind of play off the trope while clearly validating that it's obviously a trope. This felt very much like, like mid to late 2000s film school kind of ambiance, right? People just like going somewhere and like filming, just like hoping that something happens. The amount of Blair Witch that comes off this footage is magical. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it was the, it was the era. It was the era. 
Speaking of that, would you like to regale us with some lore? Today we'll be discussing ghost hunting equipment. Lovely. Please tell me about that. Ghost hunting has been around, well, as long as ghost stories. Like any monster or creature, its hunter is born from the same stories that birthed it. Today, I'd like to help any wannabe ghost facers among us, like myself, with a little history lesson in where some of this equipment comes from. First, there is one that is quite common, uh, which is the idea of an old film camera. This actually does have some pretty interesting roots in the fact that there was a famous case of a ghost being caught on film that kind of sparked this entire, you know, idea of like spirit photography. Unfortunately, the person who caught the spirit on film fully admitted that it was just a weird issue with the exposure plates and he realized it was a mistake on his part, but gave it to a friend who was a spiritualist anyways, kind of like a prank. And before he could stop him, it got published in a lot of places. That one has kind of been debunked, unfortunately. So getting yourself an old Polaroid to take photos of ghosts, yeah, not necessarily going to do anything. This did begin an era of in the time modern and now even more modern technology being used to connect with the spirits. Uh, and our next major instance would be in 1953, where the face of a woman allegedly appeared on the screen of a TV and would not fade away even after the TV was completely shut off and unplugged. Unsurprisingly, the TV did die shortly after. I guess the specter was giving us a message, but nonetheless spooky and it did get picked up and did kind of start a trend of capturing images of the dead using technology. Even after the TV, we then move into the idea of recording voices. And very often we would hear static or some kind of disturbance in our recordings. Through this static or anomalies, we believe to hear voices or things that might sound like the deceased. This, again has been debated because of the idea of the human's mind's attempts to constantly recognize patterns. This often accounts for when you see a face where one wouldn't be, like in the grain of wood, or hear something where there might not be something there. This is often uh, where we get the backmasking on songs when you play a song backwards and you think you can hear something, and it's really just your brain trying to make sense of gibberish. I am not a, I am not a skeptic by any means. I'm not sitting here saying these are 100% fake and have been disproven. I'm just saying this is the explanation given to why these can be debated. And the, I bring this up because it then brings us to the most popular of ghost hunting equipment, the EMF detector or electromagnetic field detector. The idea behind this tool is it's detecting spikes in electrical energy, which one, have the advantage of being a little more concrete, not because we can record them, but because they're harder to explain away. But on the other side, they're not recording, they're not video, they're not a permanent thing we can take and study afterwards. So it does kind of play both sides of the field in an even level. I'm the same person who says I've seen EMF detectors go off in places where it makes no sense. And I can kind of say it does leave me questioning. Now, with all this, I do want to bring up one piece of ghost hunting equipment that unfortunately has been well, not proven to not work, but has found a new purpose in life. And that would be ghost repellent. These, these are stories that are hard to fully verify. I've read many accounts of it, and they do differ from time to time. But one of the original inventors of said ghost repellent was its initial purpose. And then when no one wanted to buy it from him or thought he was weird or crazy, he repurposed it because he noticed whenever he poured it on something or left it lying around, it would begin to peel paint off walls. And that was one of the earliest versions of paint thinner. 
To any of our listeners who use oil paints and might thin their paints out, there's a good chance your painting is uh, fairly ghost-free. Or a furniture stripper, or, you know. From what I was able to research, for the most part, the version of paint thinner from, like, long enough ago has so greatly changed over time with modern chemical uh, sciences that it's nothing alike to what it once was. So your your paintings may be equally haunted. Too bad, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you really want to protect your paintings, it's much older stuff. Well, there you go. Just a quick summary of some of the equipment you might use. And uh, hopefully, if you have any good evidence, you'll share it with us. I would love to see those, honestly. So thank you, Drew, for this lovely deep dive into ghost hunting equipment. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you say it with such pride in your voice. Would you have any critiques from this episode you'd like to let us know about? We've talked about this earlier, about how this episode was nominated for a GLAAD Award in 2009 in the category Outstanding Individual Episode in a Series Without Regular LGBT Character. It didn't win. It actually lost out to an episode of The New Adventures of Old Caroline. Just to give you an idea, because I hadn't heard about this show before, I didn't know what it was. So that series, one of the uh, narrative arcs is about two female best friends who get married in a sham lesbian wedding in order for one of the characters to be able to stay in the United States. And the episode that won the GLAAD Award that year is an episode where the fake lesbians are discriminated against for being married. There's a lot to unpack there. And we just don't have the time to do it all, especially going into the new adventures of Old Caroline. So we're not going to go there. But the thing that I want to point out here is that 2008 was basically a whole other era when it comes to queer representation in media. I mean, do you realize like the slim pickings that it must have been that year for Glad to nominate a Bury Your Gaze episode and give out an award to an episode about straight women pretending to be lesbians? We often look at Supernatural with our Today goggles on this podcast, and as we should, really, because critiquing media you love is the only way to ensure progress in representation, right? But to me, there's just this stark reminder of how far we've come or or maybe how far back we were 15 years ago. And again, like that doesn't mean that we should stop, you know, demanding better, more diverse queer rep on the contrary, but we can still look back and just kind of like allow ourselves to look forward as well. And the fact there's even a category for queer representation for representation when there is no queer character is just like, Without a regular LGBT character. Like, oh my God. The fact that there are shows who don't give, you know, regular LGBT character. And I would say that that's one of the things that I'd like to unpack because I fully disagree with the fact that Supernatural does not have a regular LGBTQ character. <laughs> Completely out, maybe, is the ex-, the ex... An explicitly queer character. How about that? Not one who is clearly closeted and hiding it and will never actually admit to it, even though we all know it. Or wear camouflage. God, if we ever see Dean in camo, we are undressing that. Poor choice undressing of Undressing that? <laughs> Do you have any personal reflections or call to actions this week? Okay, let's move on. Sure. Do you want me to get started? Please. This episode for me was a call to stay humble. And what I mean by that is that there, we've talked a lot about the humor on this episode. But I also feel like there are two levels at which the ghost facers are being mocked for being amateurs. 
There's the narrative level, where they're mocked for being amateur ghost hunters as opposed to Sam and Dean. But then there's also a deeper thing going on here. They're also mocked for being amateur cinematographers by the whole Supernatural production. You know, like this aired right around the time that I was in film school. And I can tell you that I've seen a lot of cringy, quote unquote, films. Because you didn't call them videos. You called them, quote unquote, films. And this relates directly to us because we're doing this podcast as amateurs, you know, like this isn't a full-time job for us. So I'm kind of reminded that there's beauty in being a beginner or an amateur and to cherish that. Weirdly, our topics overlap, but in such very different ways. Oh my God, please tell me, what's your call to action? The ghost facers were... You said yourself they were less than great at what they were doing. I mean, they still managed to capture footage of a real ghost, which is better than most ghost shows really do. So kudos to them. I think the important thing is, despite their setbacks, and given the fact that I know just from context that they're coming back eventually, and this episode ended with a huge letdown for them and losing all their footage, they don't give up. You know what? Sometimes we have setbacks. Sometimes shit gets hard and you really don't know what the next step is going to be. But if you have a dream, you have a goal, you just got to keep gunning for it. You got to believe in yourself and you got to, even if you are an amateur, and even if you have to recognize that, you know that amateur is just the first step on the way to professional. Well, I mean, that's kind of what I was going to say, right? Like everybody starts somewhere and there's also nothing wrong with doing something as a hobby and not being good at it. Completely. I love drawing. I'm pretty bad at it, but I love doing it. There's some beauty in that, in accepting that you're not excellent at everything that you do and that you just either don't have the time or the will or the skills to kind of like just get better at something. And I think that that's, I don't know, I'm liking this. Let's stay average. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, if you have a dream like mine to become a voice actor and one day be in a Pixar film... I'm going to keep trying for it, no matter how many times it takes. Of course. I love that. I love that, Drew. Thank you. Thank you for inspiring us with this. (laughs) Shall we see what our community has to share with us today? Certainly. This week, we have a voicemail from Madeline. Hi, Mary and Drew. I'm Madeline, and I'm surprising myself today by calling because I am not a big fan of my own voice, but regardless, I had so much to say. When I began the show, I recognized Mary's vocabulary as being similar to that of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Then when you confirmed it was an inspiration to you, I knew I had to call in. I'm in the middle of practicing trying to be a more spiritual person. I don't come from a religious background, but I would like to make a blessing like they do in Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I would like to bless Bobby. Sometimes it feels like when you meet people that are considered quote-unquote damaged, emotionally, physically, It can feel like you're too late to save them and can feel like a lost cause. But Bobby does this amazing thing where he takes two people who should be, by all means, considered unfixable, and tries to make them feel and convince them that they are not a burden. Most specifically, in the season two finale, Bobby confronts Dean, and in his own way, albeit verbally aggressive, shows and tells Dean how much he means to him and his brother. It can feel so easy to slip into a feeling of being unimportant and expendable, and the people in our lives like Bobby who change your mind every day and tell us how important we are to their world is a dime a dozen. 
So I want to bless Bobby for being someone that can care for others despite their trauma and because of their trauma. I would also like to ask you if you guys have anyone that you'd like to bless from the show, whether they're main characters or only show up in one episode. Thank you so much for an amazing show. Bye. Madeline, thank you so much for your voicemail. I have to say that I don't usually listen to voicemails in advance, but I listened to this one when I saw the title of it. It was like, you know, blessing. And I was like, I've seen this before. And yes, you're, you're definitely right. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is certainly an inspiration for me for a lot of reasons, because it allows to look back at a text that I used to look at uncritically and to look at it now with a critical eye, especially keeping in mind the values that I hold. Thank you so much for your lovely blessing for Bobby. It was just absolutely eloquent and lovely. And I agree with you. And if we're going to use, you know, Harry Potter and the sacred text kind of uh, terminology, I would definitely call Bobby the patron saint of lost souls because that's who he is. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Thank you. You know what? Drew and I talked about it and we're going to try to stay. I'm anyway going to try to stay like with the characters that we've met up until this point. And I think I would like to bless Lisa because she's had this man come back into her life. And we don't know. We don't know if he's the father of her child or not. All of a sudden, her whole world kind of took a tumble, basically. You know, there was kind of like this hint of, do you want to start things up again? And he was just like, no, this is your life. This is not my life. And he walked away. But she's just there left with that reminder of this man. And in a way that's much deeper now because he saved her entire neighborhood, her son and herself from certain death. My blessing definitely goes to Lisa, who is probably thinking about Dean a lot this season. I, I will actually say I have not been a, a very full-fledged listener to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, although in preparation for this podcast, I did listen to, I, I feel like I listened to the entire first season, and then I listened to bits of some of the other seasons. I might be I might be overreaching there, but I definitely listened to a good amount of it because I definitely knew what it meant to you as a show and how you wanted to reflect on the show in a very similar way that they do in the books. So I wanted to make sure I had that right flavor going in. When I think of the way that Mary works on the show and the effort she puts in, it's it's very apparent how much love and care she puts into this and the research and thought. And it, it inspires me every day. Oh, true. <laughs> I also need to agree with your blessing of Bobby. I just like if it hasn't been made clear, I am the biggest fan of Bobby. I just I love everything about him from his comedic notes to his style to his character. Like, I just want like a Bobby spinoff show already. Oh, <laughs> is he who you would cosplay? Oh my god, I would cosplay Bobby in a heartbeat. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and I'd like to share a blessing. I, I, again, very, very short notes. We're doing this pretty quickly, but I right away kind of went to Ruby. And I just feel like we've seen Ruby on the surface a lot. And I know I don't know where her story goes, so I am kind of in the middle of this. She has been nothing but helpful to the brothers. She has clearly put a stake in uh, uh, you know this whole situation this whole war of demons she doesn't appear to have ulterior motives although i'm sure she does because she's a demon but there's this humanity to her which we also learn is something that she was so tested with i mean she describes demons as these things that were once human that were driven to a point of madness that they don't remember the humanity that she had to go through 
but retain that level of humanity somehow. At least from the surface we have for now. Again, I could be proven wrong in a few months, but this is what she's pretended to me, and I have grown to love her for it. I just want to bless her because she is doing something that she knows is so likely going to be the end of her. She risked her life so many times. She literally went to sacrifice herself to save these boys. You know, this is clearly someone who understands the bigger picture and has suffered so much to get to where she is only to suffer more just to do the right thing. And I'll be so sad when she's gone one way or the other. (laughs) There you go. But thank you for helping me think of this in a beautiful voicemail. Let's move on to the crossroads. We covered some stuff in the episode and the story time and critical time that like definitely struck a chord. But the one that really got stuck that I like have to express is this EMP. They somehow built and hidden a bag and like only triggered after it was removed from the bag. Like this seems to me like such an unbelievable end of the episode. It almost feels more unrealistic than the video, than the stuff they caught on footage. <laughs> More unrealistic than hunting ghosts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think their ghost footage is more realistic than even Sam, as bright as Sam is, to have the tools to build an EMP like that. Like, I could have seen them, like, you know, like, shorting a circuit and stealing the drive or something, like, being sneaky. Like, there's so many ways I could have taken this, but, like, the EMP just seems, like, so out of left field and so, like, not good. Like, it didn't ruin the episode. It was still a great episode. Even even that was still funny. But it was made funny because it was so, like, unbelievable. Which I think almost works. But my crossroads deal really would have been, like, just get rid of that and do something more Sam and Dean and less out of a B-movie. This is Supernatural. It is a B-movie. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, I love it. But, like, this is what it is. Actually, I've been watching, so I've been watching Criminal Minds lately, and they have a couple of episodes that like sort of touch upon the supernatural. Uh, And keep in mind that Criminal Minds like ran exactly the same amount of time that um, Supernatural did, right? From 2005 to 2020. And so I think I've seen like two episodes so far where like they're hinting at supernatural things, or three actually. And their research is just so much better than what we're seeing. Honestly, it sort of does in part come down to budget, at least, that, you know, we've heard a lot that Supernatural was on a really small budget. It's showing in those moments where they can't really do research. They don't have the time or the resources to do research on the stuff that they would like, so they just kind of, like, make up something, right? And this was an easy way of, like doing something for for free almost, right? Like there were no effects needed or very little, etc. And your crossroads deal this week? There's just so much like really deeply rooted, like good and bad chaos in this episode, right? And so it's kind of hard to pick one thing. I think I might have given up the storyline of Harry and Maggie because I just didn't really get why it was there. Maybe ask for more information about Freeman Daggett or even about, I would have loved more information about Corbett. Given how important he became to the story, I think we could have dropped the romance angle. Like, you could have hinted at it. You could have had the awkward moments because it was clear right from the beginning. I think it could have become really, like, backseated to more Corbin. I think so, too. 
You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigoureux, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. And this week, we'd like to thank Madeline for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And you can leave us a rating and a review on the podcast service of your choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. And we get to meet back with the Ghostbusters, Ed and Harry. Do you want to take that line again? Yes, I do want to take that line again because <laughs> it's not the Ghostbusters. <laughs> like how you I mean, just like they stared are named at me. after Ghostbusters, so <laughs> technically you're not wrong.